Proctor here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Compose Melbourne is back. Compose Melbourne, the sibling conference of the New York-based Compose Conference, is a two-day event being held in Melbourne, Australia on the 28th and 29th of August 2017 at RMIT, Melbourne, Australia, with presentations on August 28th and a non-conference on August 29th. Keynote is by Andrew Sorensen, titled Sound Synthesis in the Computational Crucible. For more information and to register, visit www.composeconference.org slash 2017-Melbourne. Strange Loop is coming up. Strange Loop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technologies in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through 30th at the Peabody Opera House. Registration opened June 8th, and make sure to visit thestrangeloop.com to keep updated, as tickets are still available, but they tend to go fast. PWLConf 2017 is the second full-day Papers We Love conference. Co-located with the pre-conference events at Strangeloop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th, last year's event was a great success, with talks ranging from designing network systems to game engines. This conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets are $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org as speakers are still being confirmed. Open Eye Sharp will be taking place the 28th and 29th of September in San Francisco. Taking place in the heart of San Francisco, Open F Sharp features two days of F Sharp talks and workshops with world-class speakers and unique opportunity to connect with the F Sharp community and some of its key contributors while learning about the latest developments in the F Sharp ecosystem. Tickets are currently on sale and early bird pricing ends June 30th. For more information and to register, visit openfsharp.org. RacketCon is October 7th and 8th at the University of Washington with one day of speakers and one day of collaborative hacking. Their keynote speakers are the CS professors, Dan Freeman, co-author of the classic reference Essentials of Programming Languages, and Will Bird, inventor of Mini Cameron. Details and tickets are available through the webpage at con.bracket-lang.org. Lambda World is back, taking place in Cadiz, Spain on October 26th and 27th. Early bird tickets are sold out, but student tickets and regular price tickets are still available. For more information, visit www.lambda.world. CodeMesh will be taking place on the 8th and 9th of November. Keynote speakers David Turner and Margaret Siltzer are already confirmed. Speakers have been announced and early bird ticket sales have started. For more details and register, visit www.codemesh.io. MoonConf will be taking place in Phoenix, Arizona, November 9th through the 11th. MoonConf is a three-day conference for the functional programming community to learn and celebrate together. There will be single-track talks on Thursday and Friday, and an all-day open space on conference on Saturday. For more information, visit www.moonconf.org. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to share your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page, if that is how you would like to share your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you'd leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, 
or even share your favorite episodes on social media. I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Rose Proctor, and this week with us we have Brian Hicks. Brian, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hello, I'm Brian Hicks. I work at No Red Inc. We do grammar education, and we use a lot of Elm. So I suppose that's why I'm on here, yes? And yes, I knew you were from Elm. I didn't realize you were another one of the No Red Ink crew, but uh, let's skip back and start with some of your history. How did you get into programming, and we'll eventually dip into how you got into Elm. Oh, you want to go all the way back. Okay. So I got into programming because I wanted to know how a web page worked. And so I hit view source on there. I was like, what is this like script? Excuse me. It was probably like yahoo.com or something. I don't even remember. But I found a bunch of tutorials and took them, did some nonsense, and then forgot about it from like most of high school and college. And then in college, I started kind of earning some money on the side doing PHP and design work and implementing the designs that I was designing. I have a degree in web design, basically. So kind of got back into that then, which was real helpful because I got hired as a programmer out of school and have just been kind of doing that ever since. So a little bit of JavaScript early background, what got you into it, just seeing how things worked with PHP and I'm assuming JavaScript because you're doing front-end development, so you're going to need some JavaScript at some point. What was the transition and what took you into first encountering Elm? And was that your first functional programming experience? Did you get into the functional JavaScript side or the React side or anything that set that stage for Elm? So what was that transition like, if you can recall? So I actually was working in Python full-time and I heard about a whole bunch of people really enjoying Haskell. And so I was like, well, this seems interesting and doable. And so I read some books and it was very jump in the deep end, didn't really understand what was going on. I had heard that Python's list comprehensions were quite a bit like Haskell's. I think they might also be called list comprehensions. I don't really know a lot of Haskell still. And so it unfortunately didn't really stick until I took the uh, Coursera course on functional programming in Scala. And that was enough of a you know, the whole object functional thing I could wrap my head around. And it was a good gateway drug, I guess you could call it, to the rest of functional programming. So it's more the, you've heard this stuff and you're like, I'll go check it out. So you get the experience of functional programming a little bit through mainly the Coursera course after going with Haskell. And you were still doing Python at that point? Or were you kind of back and forth between these other things before? What was that? Oh, I was doing all Python. Yeah, I was doing... uh... Python and running the Python group in St. Louis, just kind of all in on Python. But I would do it in functional style. So like, pretend my objects were immutable, use map and filter wherever I could. List comprehensions kind of work like both of those combined. I never really got into functional JavaScript, though, until I got into Elm, which is kind of odd. I never really used immutable.js or underscore lodash's functional constructs. I did learn one of the big things that was really important for me, I think, is learning, I believe it was in the Coursera course, that you can implement like any collection operator with like fold L and fold R. And that just kind of blew my mind. And I just 
what? How is that possible? And then I thought about it for a while and was like, oh, yeah, because you can accumulate anything. Wow. <laughs> and so you start pushing your Python functionally. Was that wound up being a monster in your code base or was that pretty natural? Because I know some people, they fold in these ideas and all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, that was a mistake in this language. Or you managed to get a nice a bunch of nice stuff. And I think it depends. Maybe that was the team you had and their adoption, or how well did that fit in with Python as you were pushing some of these ideas into Python? Because you're like, I like immutability. I like MapReduce list comprehensions. I like Mm -hmm. this stuff. Was that an improvement? Were you seeing this? Or was there kind of a mismatch in Python to the way you were applying it? And you're like, oh, this turned out to be Frankenstein's monster because I've now pushed all this stuff in that maybe didn't fit. It was actually a super good fit. Which, looking back on and reading other people's experiences about doing the kind of thing I did is kind of surprising, but it worked super well. So we used Celery, first of all, which was basically you can do functional mapping over a number of stages in an asynchronous distributed task queue. And so that was real helpful to use functional paradigms for, because you kind of say, okay, what's the immutable data? But you do have to reduce race conditions there. So you want to store all your state to a database and just pass an integer around, something like that. Other than that, yeah, Python is actually really well suited to use functional concepts, in my opinion. I'm quite fond of it. And how long were you doing this? And were there any transitions before you started to make it into Elm? And what put Elm on the radar? After you've gotten into Python and you're doing this and you're starting to make that transition, what were the next steps in? Was it straight to Elm at that point, or were there some other things that pushed you further down before you actually got into Elm? I actually left the job that I was running in Python with, and I went to a consultancy where we were doing mostly Go, because it was infrastructure work. And mapping those functional concepts to Go doesn't work nearly as well as it does to Python. You know, and the discussion about generics is sort of neither here nor there, but you can't really write a set as a data structure that can hold any value, which is kind of necessary to do a lot of those kind of implementations. So eh, didn't really do that. But then I went to Strange Loop, I think three years ago, two years ago, I'm not sure how long ago now. And Richard Feldman was doing a talk on, uh, it's entitled Make the Backend Team Jealous or Making the Backend Team Jealous. And he talked about, here are the things that Elm can do for you over, say, React or Angular. And we had a client project coming up that basically was an open source project. Actually, it's still open source. It's called Mantle. And basically, you could take this kind of bundle of Ansible code and put it behind your firewall or whatever in your private cloud or public cloud or hybrid, you know, whatever, a bunch of VMs. And it would be running Mesos and Kubernetes all at once. And it was just this big old ball of stuff where you could just like get everything in one go. Pretty cool infrastructure project. But we knew that our users were going to deploy it behind firewalls. And so we couldn't exactly put up error handling behind rollbar sentry or something because we couldn't get a message out. So we wouldn't know if anything ever went wrong. So we need something really, really, really reliable. And Elm fit that bill. I kind of said, okay, I'm going to take this and make a spike for this really simple UI that we need. 
And if it works, we can expand it. And if it doesn't work, we can scrap it and rewrite in like React or something. But Elm worked really well. We shipped the thing in a Docker container and it just worked, which we were extremely happy about. And it continued to work. And I imagine it still works. It was built with Elm 16, but the compiled output is just, okay, that's still valid. It's not going to crash. So it was very stable. And if it's that long ago, about three years that you're starting to get introduced and you're going on Elm 16, as you said, Elm's evolved a lot. What were the first reactions to Elm looking in? Because I believe at that point that was still the signals and event handlers before he changed it. I think Evan changed the way some of that messaging and communication was working around 17 or 18, maybe. Yeah, it was 17. And so when you were getting in, what was that mindset shift? Because you're thinking of this flow of events getting propagated, going back out, and then coming back in compared to some of this other functional experience that you had. So what was that first introduction to Elm as you were picking it up for the first time and learning it? It just kind of made sense to me. So it's a one-way flow, and I had tried to do stuff in React. It was like, okay, where do I put an HTTP request? I could put that anywhere, but it doesn't make sense everywhere. I have no idea. So having that one-way event loop where you create a message and then, oh, yeah, at the update function, now I'm going to send my HTTP stuff, handle that when it comes back in through the update function, update the view every time. It made a whole lot of sense to me. It's kind of an append-only architecture, which I'd been playing with for a few years off and on, basically. And so it kind of made sense to me based on my experience with that. One of the things that really attracted me to Elm was union types, actually, because I said, okay, this is like an enum that can have a bunch of data, and then I can just use it. And there's no real overhead there. You just have to match on everything, and it knows if it's incomplete or not, and that's it. So that was a real nice experience. But the signals themselves were not terribly painful. I never got into them too much because StartApp was a thing. And that's what I was wondering is some people have that background where they're used to that append-only architecture. And when they see Elm, they're like, oh, the Elm architecture makes sense to me. And then yeah. other people are don't have that background. And I got to understand and kind of rethink about, I can't just modify stuff anywhere that I want now. I have to do it in a certain place. So that's what I was wondering. And then you kind of mentioned the unions and some of these other features of Elms that attracted to you. Were these things that when you looked at Haskell and Scala, you were familiar with and you're like, oh, I really wish I had something and now Elm has this? Or what was that transition back if you had some of that past learning of Haskell attempts and Scala attempts? Yeah, ADTs are definitely my favorite feature in Haskell. It's just like describe your data as it is and then just use it. So I know Scala has something like it. I haven't used it a whole lot, though. And then you come back in, you start putting this app through it. So you've seen a little bit of the evolution of Elm, and I haven't kept up with Elm a lot on my end, so I don't know where it's sitting now. But as you progress with Elm, you get this app knocked out. You say it's pretty reliable. You eventually move to No Red Ink. You got a bigger app that you're dealing with. What was some of that evolution of Elm in your mind of going from this first app to working across a couple of different apps now, at least with No Red Ink and your first experience. And how has Elm evolved in your view over the years as you've been working with it? 
So my experience actually with the Red Ink is a little bit limited. I've been here a month, I think. Very recent hire here. So I don't have a lot of context for how it's evolved at No Red Ink. I do know it's a whole lot of Elm. And looking at Git history for these repos is like, okay, wow, these APIs, as Elm has evolved as a language, these very large code bases that I'm looking at have evolved along with it. Mostly the APIs have shrunk, which is an unusual thing to me because most of the time you think, okay, an API grows over time. Not so, right? So for example, we have a selection component. It's not exactly a component. It's a view function, basically. So in this selection view function, we used to have this big record thing that you had to pass in and it was ugly and messy and it didn't work well. And then like, I think last week, one of my colleagues, Aaron Vonderhaar, rewrote the thing and use like half as much code and it does everything that it did before just because we finally narrowed that API enough to expose exactly the right things that you need to do and nothing else. So there's much less chance to shoot yourself in the foot with it. And then how did you notice your evolution go? If you're working on these different things, if you've only been at no reading for a month as Elm has evolved whether or not it's this one app or however, how have you found that life cycle of Elm evolving? And what were some of the things as it's evolved that you're like, oh, this makes this really nice. One of the things, just the obvious one that we kind of touched on was the way signals changed. That was a big overhaul that supposedly made things simpler. Were there certain things as you kept playing with Elm or looking at Elm, either side apps or production apps, that have changed the way you think about Elm and the way you evolve Elm over the lifetime of working with it? Yeah, so I think the JSON decoder library is probably the biggest case of that. When I got to Elm, I looked at this decoder library, which is basically take a big JSON blob and turn it into some types and and records and stuff. And I thought, this is messy. Why can't I just do like json.loads from Python? I just need to have a blob of JSON and then work with it. But, you know, you can't really do that. You need to know what type it is. So you need to specify that. And the decoder library helps you do that really well. And so now I'm like a pretty big fan of the decoder library. I've written a whole bunch of blog posts on it. I wrote a book about it because it's something that people get stuck on. But the solution is not to rewrite the decoder library. It's to make yourself aware of how to use the decoder library properly so that you're getting type-safe data into your application and properly reporting back up when it doesn't work. So for people who are unfamiliar with Elm, and I'm one of those, what does that look like? Does that look like you do a json.load and you give it the json payload and you give it your type and it tries to map it up based off keys and make sure those types go? Or is there some manual hookup that you're doing? Is this one of those things that's derived or kind of declared of how this works? This is actually really declarative. There is a way to derive it, but it's a separate tool where you just paste a JSON blob and it says, here's your Elm code, you know, if you want to translate this one-to-one naively, which a lot of times you don't, actually. But we can get there, I suppose. So you basically have a JSON blob. It's coming in from a server or from a port in your Elm application. And you need to map that into your types. So you say decode.map5 for a object with five fields. And you give it the constructor function, 
which is probably like A to B to C to D. To, I shouldn't have chosen five. Let's say map three. <laughs> you know, we have A, B, C, and you get back a D, right? So you have the constructor function for D. And then positionally, you give it the three decoder. So you say, if I had a course that had an ID, a name, and a teacher's name to own it, then I would say decode.map3, this course, and then an int, a string, and a string. And Elm would go in there and say, okay, one, two, three, here is what either happened or an error that describes how it failed. And you can specify the fields, and the fields don't have to be in order in the JSON. It'll look at it and say, okay, this field is named this. It's not positional. I'm just going to pull it out, put it into the right spot here. A nice upgrade there is you can import something called the JSON decode pipeline that No Red Ink published, which is basically you tell it decode constructor function, and then you compose your JSON decoder using the forward application operator, which is like, I've also heard it called the pizza operator because it's like a bar and then a greater than sign. Elixir also has it, and it does basically the same thing, except in Elm, you are applying the passed in value to the last position of the function rather than the first position of the function. That's the big difference. So you can pass these in and compose your JSON decoder sequentially through these pipelines. And it ends up being a really nice thing that you can map in any kind of object you want with constants and anything you need. And it just kind of works. And you mentioned the pipe forward operator. Was that something you were familiar with before? when you were doing the Haskell or was that something that came through and took you a little bit? Cause I hear a lot of things that have gotten that from closure to F sharp to some of the Haskells and maybe the Scala stuff. And everybody's got the little thing of is it first, is it last, as you said, was that something you were familiar to or was that another thing that took some wrapping around or actually came pretty natural when you actually came across it? So I already knew how currying worked coming into it. So I was like, oh, you pass a curried function, you have one argument left, like, okay, done. That's easy. The fact that it's the last item, it kind of made sense to me. Just because of the way that Elm's, well, everything in Elm is structured this way. So that if you're operating on a collection, the collection is the last argument. So if you want to say list.map plus one, for example, the collection comes last. And it will always come last. So you have this curried function of list.map, and then you give it a list and you're there, right? And you can just put that in a pipeline. So everything is kind of structured around having these pipelines available and working well. And if they're not, you'll figure it out pretty quickly. And you kind of mentioned it. So Elm, and I don't remember right, so I want to ask you, but Elm is curried naturally. So if you have yeah. list.map, you can just apply these as a argument or two as you get. And therefore, that's why the last argument goes versus, as you said, Elixir, which is uncurried, or some of these other uncurried languages kind of take the first. But Elm is the uncurried version of this, right? So if you have a plus and you just say plus one, that's going to give you a function that takes only one number and adds one to it. It doesn't, like, the empty plus in Clojure will give you zero. It doesn't do that. And then the other thing I've heard about Elm, and you kind of mentioned it'll let you know if you screw up your pipeline operator, is the error messages. I've heard fantastic things about the error messages. Played with it a while ago. They seemed pretty good. There was some of the stuff just being new to some of this typing and generic errors where they weren't that helpful. But how did you find the error messages? And 
has that evolved over time since you've been playing with it? They're quite nice. I was working with Evan on something a couple of days ago, and he mentioned that once you start using Elm enough, you tend to become a human compiler, and you're like, oh, okay, that won't work, obviously, because the signature is wrong, and you just kind of have this state in your head. So you don't see the errors nearly as much after you've worked with it for, I don't know, a couple of months, probably. But the error messages, when they do show up, are super helpful. So like, if you misspell a field name, it'll be like, hey, you named this module name, but you gave me module name. And it'll just tell you that instead of saying like, hey, I don't know what a module name is and letting you figure it out. And I heard Evan was really good about if you see an error that you don't understand, write a bug report on it and we'll try and fix it because that's a bug. We should be clear on this. And I think the ones I saw way back when, maybe 14, 15, 16, was just some of the U is not a U prime of something else or something else. And I was like, well, nope, yep. that kills me. But they're like, we're still working on that. But I was wondering, at this point, maybe you don't see him anymore because you've turned into that human compiler was <laughs> how many of these errors are now still things that you get bit on? So I don't get bit on a lot of stuff like occasionally i'll get into a really thorny situation where i've specified some type level variables and it's i this is a this and i'm like excuse me what but it's not too often but i do think it's a testament to the error message quality that if i have something so for example if i'm adding a new message type for this elm architecture stuff if i add a new message type i'll usually just add the message and then hit save and look at the errors just to see where all I need to add it. Because the error messages are good enough that they'll say your case statement of this kind is incomplete. You need to add this following tag of the union type. And then I go do that and see what else breaks and just kind of use the compiler as a tool to help guide my refactoring, which is not super possible in some other languages. And I know that from experience of doing some dynamic versus just even the basic static typing of like the Java and C Sharp where you start to miss that sometimes if you've done enough dynamic languages where as bad as the Java and C-sharp compilers are, at least you have something to lean on and say, no, I know this is going to break at a very minimum. But mm -hmm. yeah, I've heard really good things about the Elm stuff. And even with that is the dependency management as well that I've heard is pretty amazing of knowing your dependencies are now even broken because of that dependency inspection and looking at the types have changed between your right. versions and say, nope, this is this is going to be big. This will break other people. Mm -hmm. So you get into Elm. You've been doing this for a while. So what set the foundation that you decided, at least last year even, that I want to put on this Elm comp? There's enough interest here that we need to start doing this Elm comp and we're going to put it around Strange Loop and start kicking off that process because I know there's the, another Elm comp coming up that you're, that you're involved with. You start doing this. What were those selling points, I guess, enough in your back of your head that said, I like this. This is nice and convenient. And I want to go out and push this enough that we're going to do an Elm comp around this. Yeah. So I really like going to conferences. They're a good way to meet people in niches that I wouldn't have otherwise met, especially European conferences. I don't get a lot of excuse to go over to Germany and just hang out with functional programmers, right? So I might as well do it when I can. So I like conferences, and I liked Elm. And so one day I popped onto Slack, and 
I kind of had known Richard Feldman, kind of friend of a friend, kind of a deal. He went to college here in St. Louis. So there were a couple of people that knew him. He showed up at an L meetup once. So I popped on after this L meetup he showed up at. And I said, hey, dude, when's the uh, Elm conference? Give me the lowdown. And he goes, there is no Elm conference yet, but you could make one. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I guess I got to do this now. I've misspoke there. It wasn't out of a sense of obligation. I really wanted it to happen. I've always wanted to organize the conference. So I did. And I got really lucky. Alex Miller, the head organizer of Strange Loop, is also here in St. Louis. And I messaged him on our local tech Slack. And I said, hey, what are the chances that you have a spot for something like this? And he goes, I had one open up today. Do you want it? And I'm like, uh, yes. Frick yes. So they've been extremely kind to us in hosting space and their time to help us figure stuff out. And it's basically been, we have to find speakers and sponsors and the space and internet and the venue the day of is totally taken care of because we're with them. They've been extremely generous with all of that. And I'm very grateful for that. By the way, you mentioned that it is happening again this year, which it is on September 28th, then Strange Loop is the 29th and 30th. And as of this morning, there are still tickets on sale for Strange Loop, which is a bit unusual, but they really expanded the number of available tickets this year. So if anybody's listening and you want a ticket to Strange Loop, they are still available. And you can come to ElmConf too. It's like 100 bucks. And so it sounds like a lot of the reasons that a bunch of people start to put on conferences is, you know what? I really want a conference. This conference doesn't exist. It sounds like I'm going to have to put it on myself. Yep. Was that something that you were prepared for when Richard kind of called you out tongue in cheek saying, well, sounds like a great plan. Was that something that was already in your mind? And then that was just kind of that reinforcement of, yeah, it does sound like it's going to have to be me. And that's the push that I needed. Or was that something that you had to stew on and say, is this going to be me? Do I really want to do this? And what was that jump like of actually convincing yourself to put on a conference? Because I've heard it's a lot of work. And especially if you've never put on a conference before, and you don't have support, depending on how much support you knew you actually had from Alex Miller, what was that convincing that took you to say, okay, I'm going to do this? So it was actually Richard saying like, oh, you should do it. Ha ha. And I was like, oh, that's funny. Ha, you know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, I don't think I will, but we'll see. But I knew I wanted to put on a conference at some point. And I went home and I talked to my wife and I was like, yeah, you made this joke. It was funny. And she goes, yeah, okay, so do it. And I'm like, wait. <laughs> so she is amazing and so supportive because she knew what kind of time investment that would be because we had talked about stuff like that before. And she was still like, yeah, you should do this. This sounds like it'd be good. And I know you can do it. And I'm like, oh, thank you so much. So it was really her prompting that made me actually commit to doing it. But then we had a bunch of questions to answer. Basically, like, is it actually feasible to run a conference? Will enough people show up? How much money should we charge? What kind of topics should we have? So that's where the first State of Elm survey came out of, which I also did. I was basically trying to find out if there was a market for ElmConf. And it turns out there was, so we put it on. And then the second year just concluded, and we should have result blog posts there soon, which I've been putting off writing. And I didn't realize you were behind the State of ElmConf surveys as well, so I guess we can touch on that. We've still got a little bit of time between the recording and publishing, but 
even talking last year, what are some of the things that you've noticed between the state of ElmConf as Elm has grown in your perspective, even through the survey? So the state of Elm survey started out for just ElmConf. So it was, I guess, state of ElmConf, but now it's just the state of Elm survey. It's a general community leading survey. The things I noticed this year, we have twice as many respondents as last year. So around 1200 versus around 600. And I'm rounding those numbers, but it is what it is. Almost everybody who responded was able to upgrade. So we have proportionally the same number of people on the latest version year over year. And those people who are not upgrading are proportionally very similar as well. There are a lot of people using Elm in production and more than last year. So hooray. (laughs) And I guess the last takeaway is that if you're using Elm and you're not using Elm format, go ahead and give it a try. It's like GoFumped or Prettier for JavaScript, where it just automatically formats your code for you. 91% of the people who tried it liked it and keep using it. It's a very good program. So roughly, you mentioned the people who are using it in production. Are you seeing from the survey preliminarily this year, or even just based off what the results from last year? What does production use of Elm look like? Is it fairly strong for a language that's still relatively new? Or is there still a lot of hobbyists that are still like, "Mm, I like this, I play with this on my side, but there's not a lot of adoption in the company and it's a hard sell. What is some of that stuff looking for? Because I know you hear about No Red Ink and maybe one or two other places that do this, but what are you finding at a high level of the community versus production? Is that just a lot of silent things that this is our secret weapon so we don't most people don't talk about it? Or are there still a lot of people checking it out and it hasn't quite made that jump yet from what you've seen? A lot of people put Elm in their applications as little tiny components. So like you can use Elm as a React component pretty easily. In fact, I'm looking at some old code from Nerding where we did exactly that, porting it to the latest version right now. And it's not a bad approach. You basically take one tiny little square on your UI and you say, this is going to be managed by Elm. It's going to manage its own state. It's going to manage its own subscriptions and everything. And we will let it do that. And everything else can be managed by like React or Angular or Ember or whatever you like. And then if we like it, we'll expand it. If we don't like it, we can just get rid of it and rewrite it in whatever framework native way makes sense. So there are a lot of people using it in production that way. And it's a good way to start. There are of course, a bunch of people who are just saying like, hey, we're starting out and we like functional languages, so we're going to write our front end in Elm because it's specialized for the front end. You know, it's the right tool for their job. And if you're seeing this and no reading has this and you know that this is done, when you're burying it in a React component and you're doing some of the state, this is managing its own state completely. So how does that play in with the parent state from what I've seen of some of these React and Redux, where you've had the largest lifecycle of state that gets passed down, is that still happening? Or you've got two different event cycles now. You've got the React event cycle and you've got the Elm event cycle. Or are those both kind of playing in together and the React stuff is still another port that comes in? There's a number of ways to manage it. So if you want to just have Elm be like a select list on your page, you can do that because there's something called flags where when you invoke the Elm runtime, you can just pass it flags to start. And your main function will receive those and deal with them as necessary. So you can have a subport be that, and then just, or sorry, a, uh, a subcomponent of your larger like React be that. 
And if you need it to unmount, you can have a port that sends a special message that just turns off all updates and ends all subscriptions. And you can kill it pretty easily that way. Even though it's technically still running in the JavaScript VM, it's never going to do anything again. And you can pretty much ensure that just because of, you know, you can write it well because Elm helps you do that. The other way to integrate it, if you don't like to use Elm as a view layer, and some people don't, they like JSX. And for good reason, it's, it's a nice syntax. It's familiar. So what they do is say the back end of our front end event loop is going to be Elm. So it's going to be an update and a model, and we will handle all effects in there. So when a user event comes in, we're going to send it in on a port, and we're going to get out state on a port, and we're going to render it in JSX. And that's going to be it. Like there's going to be no state changes in React otherwise. There's a couple of libraries for that. Now, I don't remember what they're called because I don't use them. I like the view layer in Elm enough that I just write everything in that. There's actually a, I should shout out to this because it is really cool. It's called Style Elements. Matthew Griffith, he's at Cornell Tech in New York City, made this library that says, I'm going to approach layout as a first-class citizen as part of the structure of the HTML API. So you can't decouple float left or float right from a div, they are tied together. But the styles, like presentational styles, colors, borders, uh, sorry, border colors at least, are separate and you can ship them separately. So the things that need to ship with the app for it to run and look okay are all in one place. And that's one thing I think from what looking at Elm is that it kind of breaks that separation of the presentation in the same way that a lot of people complain about your code and your JSX being all bundled together. Elm kind of takes that similar route as well, right? And does that just force it more where you're saying, I've got this component, I'm thinking of this as a component in Elm. So all my style around that is going to be with that component and it's not going to be pushed outside that component as much. Is that pretty common? Yeah, but I think we're going to be talking about components in two separate ways here. So I feel that we should call it out. Basically, an Elm component, when you say that, is like a view function that takes in a bit of immutable data and renders an HTML, which can then be diffed using the virtual DOM, where a React component manages its own state. And Elm components don't do that. You can put it in your model in like a hierarchy if you want, but it's best to have it a little more flat than you would in React. It does bundle HTML together. I don't know that that's a bad thing. The language started off being, I want a better way to vertically center something. And so it's an API for displaying text on the screen. The underlying API happens to be HTML, and that's fine. We can do what we need to with that. And when we can write better abstractions on top of the HTML APIs, we will. And Style Elements does that. And I guess when I say component, I'm be some of it more generically in the pattern of going back to even the Java or the .NET or even Visual Basic, here's a button and I could theoretically drag and drop this button anywhere. It's isolated. It's got its own presentation. It's got its own view of how things are. And then what you're doing is you're passing in the data to it. And that's where these view functions come in, correct? So oh, yeah. if you've got this thing, all its styling, all its presentation is going to be its own isolated unit of control. And then what changes is the data, and it's going to be responsible for pretty much how it renders itself. And the only thing that's going to change is the data that goes in it, right? 
More or less, yeah. Okay. So we've been talking for a while. What about Elm haven't we covered that you think we should be selling people on? For people who go out there, they're doing JavaScript, they want to do Elm, or they want to do something besides JavaScript. They know there's PureScript, they know there's React, which may be doing some flow on top of that. There's other of these options. What is the high selling point for Elm that you think you should let people know about? And is there anything in there that we haven't touched on that we should make mention to? I actually don't think so. For me, the the benefit of using Elm is creating apps that don't break. And we've covered that plenty. So that's what I was wondering. I didn't know. There's a bunch of tools around it, but the main thing is the resiliency. And I've heard that called out a lot. Is there anything around, I guess, the philosophy that you think can help sell people about why it doesn't break? Because you hear a bunch of these things that claim they don't break, and they probably don't. Is there anything special about the Elm philosophy other than the Elm architecture that you think lends itself to not breaking? Because we've covered the compiler giving you those type ins and essentially driving you the changes you need. So if you change something, you know. The Elm architecture that separates out the state. So you know the rendering versus the state modification versus inputs and all that stuff. Is there anything else that you think that helps cover that, that people who aren't familiar to Elm should know about? So that the Elm approach to API design is rather like grilling something versus cooking it sous vide. So if you grill a steak, you'll have it ready immediately, but you might burn it and there's no going back. With sous vide, you cook it slowly, you make sure it's good, you make sure it's right, you start from the right place, you end with a good result. It's very scientific. There's a lot of distilling of issues into unified stories that happens within the Elm compiler, and the community has kind of adapted that as well. So it's okay to release a breaking version because the compiler will catch it and it will be fine. But, you know, it's also good to sit and think and release the right thing first rather than having to change everything around. So we've circled back around. We've touched on ElmConf and the origins of it, but we've got the ElmConf coming up as we announced. Yeah. What should we make mention to? What do we want to tease? What do we want to sell about this ElmConf that's coming up? I know Tessa and Richard and a couple of other people are there talking. Mm -hmm. What should people be looking forward to and this is your chance to help kind of promote the Elm Comp for this year that's coming up since we got about a month out before it kicks off. Oh dear, it is getting close, isn't it? Hooray! <laughs> no stress, no stress. So last year over this year, last year we didn't have a lot of time for people to just sit and be together. And this year we've built a lot more time into the schedule. Despite having more talks where people can just be together and hang out, talk about Elm, hack on it, meet the people in the community. So if you're in Elm or interested in Elm and you've only met some people online, you should show up because at least all of the big names in the United States will probably be there. There are a bunch of people coming in from Europe as well. And we also have Evan keynoting again. So I'm sure that is going to be really good. I don't actually even have his keynote title yet, but we'll get there. And it's kind of loaded because there's workshops that day. You've got ElmConf. You've got the Papers We Love conference. All those things kind of go on. I'm assuming most of these people are also going to be at Strange Loop. Is there anything that, for people who can't make it because they're either pre-booked with workshops or they can't make it out that day, that people at Strange Loop can kind of coordinate with that ElmConf crowd to know about? Is there, is there anything 
besides just being right at Strange Loop that you do to help kind of call out the Elm crowd at Strange Loop? No, if you're here for Elmconf, you're here for Elmconf. Strange Loop, cool. There's not a whole lot of overlap between the events. That said, there will be a couple of hundred of people who have gone to Elmconf who will be at Strange Loop. So if you just show up in the, like, uh, there's a conference Slack that you'll get an invite to when you buy your ticket. And you will be able to coordinate with people and say, hey, I'd like to talk about this. Let's go get dinner. And, you know, hey, ping me. I'm happy to recommend restaurants because I'm a local. And that's what I was wondering is continuing some of that ElmConf unofficially throughout Strange Loop because you've got the people who are like, yeah, we got this. We're going. We're here. We've all got this common crowd. Strange Loop is cool and awesome, too. But Mm -hmm. we're there. And I didn't know if there was any kind of. As you mentioned, I guess it's the Slack group that says, hey, we're still around here. We're going to keep going and we're going to keep this Elm party going throughout all of Strange Loop as well. Instead of just saying, well, Elm Conf was just one day, but now we're on to Strange Loop versus no, no, no. That party is still, there's a background party still rolling about everybody who loves Elm. <laughs> That's about right. There will also be a lot of chatter in the Elm Slack, I'm sure. There's a conferences channel in case you haven't joined. It's for all the conferences, though. There's not an ElmConf-specific one anymore. We renamed it to just conferences when the European conferences started showing up. And you mentioned the European conferences. So as someone who puts on the U.S. conference, yeah, what is your view of how the U.S. conference fits in with some of the European conferences from what you've seen? Is there a similar theme to them? Are there different themes? I know you got different crowds and different people using it, but at a high level as a conference organizer, what are the things that you like about the different conferences and different flavors? And maybe what you see is needed here in the U.S. as well as maybe a counterpart to more Elm conferences and getting the bigger Elm community around. I think we should just have more Elm conferences everywhere because there's tons of people who don't want to travel overseas or who can't because of visa restrictions. It's not a terribly friendly time for a European to come to the U.S., unfortunately. So yeah, having a European conference is really good. And the two European conferences that have showed up so far, Elm Europe and the Oslo Elm Day, have both had their own particular flair. So Elm Europe was two days just kind of jam-packed with speakers from everywhere. And then the Oslo Elm Day was more geared toward beginners. And it had a very Nordic theme where you could go and kind of just be with people and talking about things. It was a smaller conference and it was a very nice setting and i spoke at both of them and they were wonderful experiences to speak at too so next time cfps comes up anybody should just submit a talk to any of these conferences it's uh, a wonderful experience to speak at any of them and then is there any call outs advice suggestions you have for people because you said you love these conferences you love going to them even here in the united states or wherever someone decides Do you have any recommendations or tips that say, besides just do it and put on a conference, is there anything that you would encourage people and help that spark that jump of saying more conferences, more conferences around Elm, especially, and whether it's regional destination, bigger area conferences, smaller conferences, do you have any call to action as someone who's done a conference organization and say, how do you motivate people to do that? Is you have any hints or suggestions or just call outs of the benefits of it? So if you don't have an Elm user group or a functional programming user group in your area, just start one and like just put it on meetup.com and people will show up. 
it's a really nice experience to just have people show up. And if nobody shows up at first, don't get discouraged. Just keep meeting. The best advice that I had that I got as a meetup organizer was just keep meeting. Don't stop meet every month. The people who are going to show up will show up. You just need to keep at it. It doesn't always necessarily work like that, but most of the time I found that it does. Other than that, like you'll get so many benefits from organizing anything, even if it's just local. People will know your name. When I organized the Python group, for example, I organized it for three years and went to every meeting. And people started walking up to me at other events and just talking to me. And I was like, uh, hi, hello, I don't know you. I'm so sorry. Like, I think we've probably met, though. <laughs> so people will start know you. And that's an enormous benefit to your career, especially if you want to stay in the same area for a while. But even if you don't, it's good experience to organize something. It's a lot of fun. And bringing up the meetups and just the local user groups is a good recommendation at that start that I forgot to even mention about because you mentioned the Python stuff and didn't realize you started with the Elm user group as well. So I didn't actually start the one here. It was somebody else. And I got roped into helping co-organize. But at that point, I was always already doing a conference. So I didn't have a whole lot of time. <laughs> so we're getting close to the time. We're starting to wrap up. Is there anything just in the general world of Elm? You mentioned the Elm formatter stuff. You mentioned the JSON parsing stuff. Is there anything that's particularly interesting that you think people should be looking at for Elm that says, maybe you're on the fence, maybe you're trying to do this. Here are good projects that might even help you sell or be some good example projects. I know Richard has his editor. I, my mind went blank of the name of it. Do you have any references or things that you want to put out there that you could see as good examples for making that case of Elm and seeing how Elm could and should be done? You mentioned the open source project that you worked on too. Do you have any recommendations for the listeners, for those who may be just on the edge just getting into Elm? So, okay, top recommendation, you can go to builtwithelm.co and you will find a list of every open source project that people have just said, here's a thing that I built with Elm. If you want to build a game, you can find games. If you want to build a website or a fitness tracker, whatever, you can find whatever you like on that. And most likely just go and be able to inspect the source and say, is this good or is this bad? The second recommendation, get on the Elm Slack or get on the Elm subreddit. People do one or the other or both. I happen to do kind of both because I'm an admin on the subreddit. And it's a really good way to get help because sometimes you get stuck and you want to get unstuck. And third, Richard Feldman's book, Elm in Action, takes a long form approach to getting you up to speed. I think it's pretty appropriate if you have programming background. If you don't, maybe go for an imperative language first because it's easier to find resources to get you up to speed there and then you can come over the functional side. Yeah, and I guess while I'm mentioning things, there's also in my book, the JSON Survival Kit, for which I will make a promotion code for 10% off. Let's just say it's called Geekery. Sounds good. And then where can people go find your book? It is at my website, bryantthicks.com. So they go Brian T. Hicks, find the book, and they'll put in code Geekery, and we'll get that code in the show notes as well. So cool. we'll make sure to get that. So yeah, people can go check out your book and look at some other examples of Elm as well and see a little more in depth of what we were talking about with the JSON parsing. Yeah. So we mentioned your site. We mentioned ElmConf. 
where are the other places for people to track down, keep an update with what's going on and what you look for? They mentioned the State of Elm survey. I'm sure that's going to be coming out probably on your site, maybe not. Yep. Where are the best places that people find out what's going on with you and everything you're involved with? So everything I'm involved with, definitely my site, which is also listed on the Elm Lang Planet site, which is planet.elm-lang.org, has a bunch of blogs. There's also my Twitter and GitHub, which are just my name, Brian Hicks. And I'm on the Elm Slack at the same name, which is also my name, Brian Hicks. So I was fortunate to be able to get my name pretty much everywhere except the domain name, where I had to use my middle initial. <laughs> and we'll get those all included in the show notes so people can track you down, keep updated with what's going on, and keep updated with the world of Elm as you find it with the conferences and everything, say the Elm survey when that comes out. Uh, if that comes out soon enough, we'll get that included in the show notes as a reference. Or I can go back and I always update it in the future. Sure. And then it's also interesting to know about the Planet Elm site, because I found those Planet sites are amazingly useful resources to help just see what's going on and find people sharing and learning from anywhere from the, I'm just getting started, here's what I found, to the deep end of, oh, here's how you do this crazy awesome thing in Elm that may be beyond your head, but you now know it's possible, so... Didn't even realize that was out there, so thanks for throwing that out, too, because that's always interesting to watch for. Oh, yeah. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Brian, for taking your time to join me today. It's been a while since I've talked to Elm. I think Hardy was the last person I've had who kind of even touched on Elm at some point. And it's always nice to keep updated and see what's going on with all these other languages. And I do want to get more Elm on the future. And Thanks for coming on. If there's more you want to come on and share, please let me know in the future. And I'm happy to come on and talk more about Elm and help sell the larger Elm community as well. And part of growing the functional programming community, making sure that whatever the option is that for someone, that it's out there and readily available to help people know about and know that it's out there for them. So thanks for taking the time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me on. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.